All right, welcome. Happy Thursday, everyone. Great to see you here. Um, I'm Bob Krell. I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine, and I'm happy you could join us on this Thursday for the Healthy Indoors Live Show. Uh, great topic today, really great topic. We're going to be talking about asbestos. Uh, yeah, there's still asbestos around, believe it or not. So uh, it's uh, this is a very important topic, and we're going to get into it with somebody who is uh, very well-versed with it, been in the industry a long time. Uh, today's guest is an internationally recognized expert on asbestos and lead-based pain issues. He has 30 years Years of industry service and is regularly asked to speak at national conferences on the issues of asbestos detection and control. He's published extensively in print and e-media and manages a LinkedIn page, the Asbestos Professionals Network, with over 15,000 registered users. So I'd like you to welcome our guest, Tom Lobenthal. How are you, Tom? How are you, Bob? It's great to be here. I, it's, it's, it's absolutely fabulous to have you here today. Um, this you know, I guess the first the first question right off the bat is, is there still an asbestos issue? And this is a 10,000 foot view. I mean, do we need to worry about it anymore? Well, yeah, there's a lot of very, mis, you know, big misconceptions that we have in the big building owner community down to the public that somehow we removed all asbestos many years ago. And I think a lot of that came from the commotion we had back in the 80s with all the school work that was being done. Uh, people probably thought some magic hand went through and took all of this out of the buildings. That's hardly the case. You know, we had a lot of emphasis on schools. We maybe uh, we rewrote a book about 2015 from the EPA called the Purple Book, and the best estimates we could come up with is about 30% has been removed from schools. But if you don't leave the office building community and don't understand the industrial community, the military bases, the nuclear facilities, and on and on and on, there's untold miles of pipe insulation, fireproofing, floor tile, all sorts of materials that are still in buildings. Now, can it be managed? Absolutely. Is it always managed? Mm, maybe, maybe not. Uh, that's the issue that we have in our public health mission is to try to get people to know what's where so that workers can avoid exposures. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, right out of the blocks, uh, you know, I, you, and you mentioned, I think people are making the assumption that asbestos is not as big of a problem because a lot of the school issues were handled in the 80s under AHERA. So that's that's the percentages. And that's still even not a large percentage of what was cleaned up. Uh, you're saying only like maybe 30% was done in the schools. That's just the schools. Yeah. So these other areas, maybe nothing at all, right? Well, a handful of percent, you know, up, uh, people, maybe 5%. You know, I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, you have to also think about it this way. You know, once there's a couple of different things, the way to look at this. To just go into a building and remove asbestos merely because it's present, like in an office building, how much time does a company lose by having to vacate an area, <clears throat> productivity loss, you know, all that sort of thing. You get into industrial, like I've worked at paper mills, power plants, nuke facilities and things. It's 24-7, man. Mm -hmm. You know, they do, they do shutdowns periodically for maintenance, and maybe they can do some asbestos work there. Otherwise, it's nonstop work to get put out product. It's about profit expectation and meeting margins. Sure. So the fact is, is that there really has never been a requirement, number one, to remove asbestos merely because it's present. So I want to make that absolutely clear. Uh, not even in the schools. The reason that we did a lot of removal in schools is because we found a lot of damaged materials, things that were quite old. And there's a whole system to make those decisions. The only time we have to remove asbestos is prior to demolition and renovation under EPA regulations. And once we get into that work, what we call OSHA regulations, worker safety and work practices kick in in a major way in terms of how that work has to be done. And sometimes it goes very well and other times not. We could talk more about that. Well, you're talking you're talking about the demolition renovation. So that you're referring to the NESHAP. Um, yes. and, and, and again, you know, what's, it, what's interesting. So I've spent a lot of time in the uh, mold remediation industry. I was mm -hmm. I was early in that in the early 90s. And there was always this attitude back then. We're doing mold remediation. And this is a bad attitude, by the way. Uh, you know, we're doing mold remediation. We don't do asbestos and lead. It's like if you're demolishing existing materials, uh, you, these are regulated hazardous materials you have to deal with. Actually, that was, probably, that was probably the biggest kick in the pants to when the mold guys kicked in, as we like to call them. You know, when we started understanding mold a bit more, the Texas case and things years ago. Sure. And what happens is, you know, you had contractors going into these places and just ripping out walls, ripping out floors, and asbestos stuff just being thrown on front lawns. And a lot of the mold guys really got hammered with that. And for those uh, that are on this message here, um, when it comes to lead-based paint, the EPA has a regulation called RRP, Renovation, Repair, and Painting. 
So when these guys do disturbance of lead paint in a house, uh, pre-78 house, there's all kinds of lead regulations there too. And that's been around for more than 10 years. So Bob's right. You know, when we get into this work, there's all kinds of hazards and asbestos is something we have to look for. Not all people that do this renovation work have that kind of training or knowledge. But, the, but there are, I guess the, the key point here, Tom, though, is that they're all subject to the regulatory, uh, both state and federal regs and uh, municipal regs, like for the case of like New York City, where you, regardless of whether that's something you're doing, you can't claim ignorance here, right? No, and the sad thing is, is that it's just, you know, the best example I use for folks that are new to this, you get stopped on a road by a highway patrolman and you say to them, well, I didn't know that was against the law. They don't care. It was your job to know what the law is. And it's a similar thing with this. I've had many people that have come into my classroom for years, and I spent years teaching uh, the asbestos and lead-based paint classes with a group called the Environmental Institute in the Atlanta area. And what happens is I've had guys tell me, well, how are we supposed to know all this stuff? Well, folks, if you're going to get into the business, you're supposed to know all the different hazards that go along with this. I mean, go back to just basic hazard communication requirements with OCHA and the training that goes along with that. Most of these guys don't even have HAZCOM programs let alone worry, worry about things like asbestos, lead, paint, and mold. Now, this is secondary in their things. They get jobs. They do what they have to do. And whether or not they needed to bring in a subcontractor trained, they may or may not. I would say things have gotten better over the years, but there's still plenty of this that goes on. Well, I mean, and, and to the mold point, mold differs radically in that mold is not a regulated hazardous material in most, yeah. I, I don't think anywhere, right, in the United States. It's not, not, that not I'm considered. It's licensing issues more than anything. Yeah, so it's just, but but as far as the actual mold contaminated material, let's just see. Indeed, that's construction waste. So you can dispose of that, but, but <laughs> you're still subject to all all the requirements as far as uh, as far as potential lead lead based paint byproducts, asbestos, and any other form of you know mercury, whatever else could possibly be in there, right? Well, the thing is, with you know if lead waste coming from households is exempted from hazardous waste rules. So it typically can go to municipal solid waste landfill, but not asbestos. Right. It has to go to a, a EPA through the RICRA program. It has to be an EPA-approved landfill. Often they are garbage dumps, but they have set aside cells that are specifically for asbestos. And this is the problem with the guys that don't understand this in renovation or you know, guys taking off like asbestos siding shingles and they just throw them in a dumpster. If the landfill figured out that that was dumped in a regular C&D landfill, they would be very unhappy about it. Mm -hmm. Even if it may be legal in some cases where the material is non-friable, the C&D guys, uh, where we take construction debris, they don't want that stuff. Well, uh, and it's it, gonna become friable when they start rolling bulldozers over it and stuff, smashing the transite shingles up. It may well, not be friable you know, in, in its solid form, but. And a lot of these C&D landfills, they're crushing the concrete for reuse and things like that. And we've seen these asbestos materials actually get mixed into that stuff because, you know, transite pipes and all kinds of stuff that get ground up because they think it's just cement. So it causes all kinds of problems. And frankly, in the long run, the landfill could get in trouble if they take it, if they're not licensed for asbestos and it is friable material or it has become friable in that way. Or the fact is, is that uh, the contractors that are bringing it are supposed to have waste shipment records from the asbestos NESHAP and all kinds of other things. So, I would say there's still plenty of this that goes on. I even had a siding contractor that came to a lead class one time. He said, oh, those asbestos shingles, we just put them at the bottom of the dumpster and put everything else on top of it. Oh, <laughs> and he actually said that like that that was okay. <laughs> well, the thing is, you know what this tells you? They're aware of what the issues are. They just choose to ignore them. Yeah, well, that's more reprehensible by all str I mean, I, I, I could almost... Well, no, I, I can't even excuse somebody being ignorant because if you're going to put yourself into this industry and say that this is the work you do, you, you need to be knowledgeable. And you can't – ignorance is like – it's a stupid excuse. Totally. No, it, I'll be honest with you. Anything that you could expose people to, there is a negligence issue there. And I would say a lot of times it's negligence, but we have had cases, the Department of Justice, that we have seen where people have – it's truly gross negligence. And people have done you know up to 10 years in the federal penitentiary some of this stuff. So the fact is, is that people do get caught, but the biggest problem that we have across the country, and a lot of European folks really don't understand the nature of this country. we got 50 states, mm -hmm. and every one of these states may regulate a little bit differently. You're in New York. I mean, you, yes. you, got, you got Rule 56, baby. Yeah, I mean, rule 50, got, we're pretty tight. New York's a pretty tight, tightly regulated state for asbestos. Well, I have to remind guys from Texas, New York, and California, the rest of the country is not like you. <laughs> and and I, you know, I have a hard time, you know, 
still processing, you know, because I've, I've worked as a consultant around the country in various IQ stuff. And yeah, I've, I've been like shocked at how lax some other states are, you know, when doing IQ consulting and there's, you know, they can take floor tiles up and like, there's no reg on that at all. I'm like, really? Well, there are, but the fact most states have uh, designated NESHAP programs. Uh, but the fact is, is that they don't get out there. A lot of these jobs don't get notified the way they're supposed to be. Uh, contract flowing contractors could make mistakes, you know, but the fact remains is without budgets to do enforcement, a lot of this doesn't happen. Now in the state programs, if they are part of the Department of Health, like, like North Carolina is an example, uh, those programs tend to be more funded. But like in Georgia, where I spent a lot of years, uh, we're under the Department of Natural Resources. And as one of the administrators told me years ago, he said, when it's Department of Natural Resources, the most important thing to them is deer hunting, quail hunting, um, uh, you know, trout fishing, yeah. bass fishing. And so what happens is down way below in, in the air program is where asbestos lives. The air so program is below trout fishing. That's fabulous. Well, you know, in terms of funding, no, I know, I know, you're, the, the, yeah. but it's an interesting you know, analogy. Yeah, so that, that's, that's the issue because the thing is some of these states are really good about it and other states – it just doesn't occur. And then again, you got other states, you know, that uh, like I have friends in Montana. And if you've ever not been to these Western states, people don't realize how big they are and how widespread these cities are. So regulators trying to keep up with those massive areas like that is really hard. Georgia is an example. It's an enormous state. The metro Atlanta area is, is, is a thing unto itself. And then you have Macon in the south part of the state. And God knows where work occurs and where the bad guys exist. Uh, the best thing that they could do is to get the people that give building demolition permits, the things that go through counties, to start asking for asbestos surveys. And they do here in South Florida. Three Southern Florida um, counties require that. So we see a lot more of that work occurring here in that way because they're making sure that these people are doing asbestos surveys before they do renovation or demolition work. Mm -hmm. If that happened, we'd probably get better compliance. I failed to point out in the beginning of the show, for those of you, uh, we're live streaming in a lot of places, uh, predominantly on the Healthy Indoors Online Global Community. Um, if you're uh, watching the show somewhere else, you can go to global.healthyindoors.com, see the show, and we have a chat, a live chat there. So if you have any questions for Tom you'd like to pose, uh, by all means, type those in there. We'll bring them over and you'll have the opportunity to have your question asked live on the air. I uh, forgot to say that in the early time. That's what happens when you go extemporaneous. Um, so, so, you know, so give us just a, you know, in your introduction, in your bio, you know, I mentioned 38 years experience. I'd just like to spend a few minutes just historically talking about, you know, your journey. You know, you started back in the pre-adhera days, uh, back when it was a little more Wild West, right? National Asbestos Council. I mean, oh, yeah. old days. Well, the thing is, in the long run, I'm, you know, I'm a geologist by training. Okay. And uh, what got me into this business in the first place is that we do polarized light microscopy. For bulk sample analysis and the college I went to Cleveland State was particularly good with that and one of our friends got a job with a company called McCrone it's Dr. Mc uh, extension of Dr. McCrone's teaching and consulting group in Chicago we opened an office in Atlanta and he got a job there and then four other of us came down and we all worked on microscopes and doing PLM analysis so when those days uh, in 84 when I got involved in this the only thing that was really being pushed was the original asbestos in schools rule from 1982. And in that, what it really was, was um, basically take three samples of friable materials and tell the school and tell the parents, well, that didn't go real well. <laughs> and the EPA had to kind of backpedal. OSHA regulations were just a few pages back then. So it was the Wild West. And the, the joke that we've had for years uh, when it came to monitoring asbestos removal projects is that it was the dark side and the Jedis. And the dark side were the contractors and the Jedis were the consultants that were managing them. I'll be honest with you, things have gotten more collegial over the years with better contractors and things like that, but it was tough. Uh, and back in those days, we were doing school removals that would be summer long projects. You know, you're removing asbestos from 20, 30 school, you know, classrooms, hallways, gymnasiums, auditoriums, stuff was falling on you. You know, in those days, we had airline respirators. Everybody used showers. And then, you know, because you were involved in a hazard thing that everybody kind of took seriously. I can't say everything, but for the general part of the, of the industry, we really kind of paid attention to some of this stuff because it was best practices. And we had good contract. We had good uh, architects and engineers back then that understood this, that wrote good specifications for these projects. 
So a lot of times we really had the advantage of having a way to enforce this stuff, even if we didn't have regulations because of contract requirements. Well, then in 1987, uh, the EPA reissued the school's rule. Uh, it's an acronym, Asbestos Hazard Emergency Response Act. We called it HERA. It's actually asbestos-containing materials in schools, uh, the regulation itself. But that really changed things. And what EPA did is they realized what they needed to do is be a little bit more comprehensive in terms of giving people guidance as to what they expect for its, uh, surveys, how many samples to take, what kind of material, uh, how we write reports, how we communicate, and then very importantly, a thing called management plans where we actually have to write a plan for the school that actually puts some decision logic in there about what needs attention now, what can be managed uh, later in the future. And it's all based on damage categories. So a hero was a really good attempt and still is in, in, in most part uh, a way to manage school issues. But man, we went from small time contractors, a handful of you know, environmental engineering firms that were doing this work to that entrepreneurial bubble. And everybody and anybody that could go to a three-day class to become an asbestos specter, we call them three-day wonders. And it was, it was, it was the Wild West, man. And back in those days, people actually thought that they could bid asbestos inspections by the square foot, not by time and materials or a fixed fee per se. And this got so competitive uh, for people just trying to get some jobs to be able to get some experience. They were bidding schools for a penny or a half a cent a square foot. And I remember taking phone calls. I was with a group called the National Asbestos Council. I moved over there in 1987. They've now become the Environmental Information Association. I was their head technical guy. And I got phone calls from people all the time. How can they do this? It's like, what do you want me to do? Uh, the fact is the market is doing what it's going to do. You know, when you get into these entrepreneurial things, it was crazy. Now, I'll be honest with you, there were a lot of surveys that were done badly, but we had a lot of good people do good work. Um, we found a lot of problems. There was a lot of removal that occurred. Some removal was merely uh, taken on because the PTAs panicked. Uh, sometimes things could have been managed, but they decided to remove it. That was their call on it. It's a very expensive move, and you can only hope the contractors do the right thing. But probably one of the most important things about a hero was the final clearance air sampling procedures that were prescribed. And we had to use a technique called transmission electron microscopy, which is the only method that's ever been written for final clearance for asbestos, and it's a very good standard. So in the long run, what we did is we not only became more specific on how that schoolwork was to be done, but things like air sampling at final clearance and uh, numerous other issues. But suffice it to say, we had this enormous bubble. Everybody you can imagine, entrepreneurs to, uh, of all stripes, you know, money people down to people that just didn't have a job and wanted to try to jump into this. I mean, it was all stripes. But in about 1990, 91 timeframe, a lot of the work had been done. We had met the dates that were prescribed by AHERA. So all of a sudden now we had the other side of the bubble. And there was a lot of shakeout. Uh, there was a lot of buyouts and things. And what happened is uh, a lot of these companies were floundering because they were overstaffed. They had uh, their over-officed, you know, too much office space for what they really needed. So there was a lot of consolidation back then. The company that I worked for for many years called ATC Group Services, they're now Atlas, I believe, um, they were an agglomeration from the early 90s, and it was a bunch of companies thrown together. And that's still happening. We're still seeing companies being bought out. A lot of my friends that are entrepreneurs that started in this industry have sold their concerns, the bigger concerns, uh, for retirement. But suffice to say, in the 90s, it was a big shakeup, and a lot of people were, were floundering to try to figure out how to get work. And so we had a lot of dropout of the industry. Um, but we still had schools. And then what happened is in um, 1990, uh, the asbestos niche was rewritten in its current form. And what that did is it prescribed uh, building surveys, what they call uh, you know, a complete building inspection of areas that will be disturbed before demolition and renovation. That's what drives the industry today, not the school's rule. And so we have to do these thorough inspections, determine what's there, friable, non-friable, anything that's going to be come friable or is in, in the way we have to get rid of this stuff before demolition renovation. That helped the industry in terms of keeping things alive, but it took people a long time to realize the importance of NESHAP. But they kept laying back on the school thing. It's like, guys, you can't, you can't ignore this NESHAP thing. And so we really had to reinvent training programs at that time to get them to think in that way. Uh, so that kind of kept the industry going for a bit. You know, lead paint showed up in those days, in the early sure. 90s, you know, 92, we had the, 
task of Title IV with the um, school, with all of the lead paint rules for target housing and child occupied HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development got involved in that. We thought this would be the new asbestos. Not really. <laughs> there was a handful of firms that kind of did this work that specialized in it, but it was another thing that people got into in that way. Um, then in 94, 95 timeframe is when the OSHA regulations that we have kicked in. And that really also put a jolt in the industry because it become very prescriptive of how we do our work, like the big friable work we do for fireproofing, pipe insulation, things like that we call class one work, things like floor tile and wall boards and things like that we call class two. So they become quite prescriptive on that. It really did help in terms of the industry understanding what they really needed to do in terms of the work. And that threw a little bit of life into the industry, but for all intents and purposes from an economics 101 class, but we learned things about the business cycle and things like that. We are in the mature phase of this industry. And effectively what you can do is come down to almost an asymptote, but you have space between the x-axis and it will be there for years. And it's the mature market where effectively what we have is all the players that we really need in the industry. People do come and people do go, but the only number of players that we have in the industry is that which can be supported by the industry. So that's why I would tell people that want to get into this business because I've had many of them that want to. I'd say, guys, just because you hang out a shingle doesn't mean they're going to be the path to your door. You know, most of the really big clients that are out there, the big industrials and the big, you know, Fortune 500 types, you know, they've had big firms locked down with them for years. So it's a long crawl to try to get in this business, but we always need new players and we need people that actually care about asbestos and making sure they do the job right. So it's been a long history and I've been involved in all of this, uh, you know, because I was with the National Asbestos Council, I was really part of that whole AHERA thing. I did some of the earliest lectures and conferences on the depths of AHERA uh, when NISHAP came along, the same kind of thing. So effectively, guys like me uh, that have been around for a long time, we grew up with the industry. And basically, it's like the old saying, you know, you, you want to dance with the one that brung you. I kind of have. And I stuck there with asbestos for years. and I did the same thing with lead-based paint issues. Uh, but the thing is, when you're in, in this kind of a history, and then I'm also a pack rat for, you know, materials. I've got a library that's just enormous of materials that I've gotten over the years that are historical that a lot of people will never see. So on the LinkedIn page, what I try to do occasionally is to throw some of this up on the LinkedIn page to our newer entrants that come into the market and actually see some of these historical documents, decisions that were made and things like that. So what I hope for is not only myself, but other people that are in this industry, we don't fall into the same trap that has happened with other industries, whereas people retire, they take the knowledge with them. We have to pass this knowledge along. And I'd like to think that's part of what that LinkedIn page is for. But there are other things. I run an email service. We have other people that run in LinkedIn pages. And I can only hope that this information gets passed on to these younger people. Probably the biggest difference that I see now compared to when I started in this business is the people that started with asbestos and environmental issues back then late 70s, you know, from the 70s into the maybe late 80s, there was a public health mission there. We were doing this for a reason. We were dealing with something that we didn't know much about. We, we knew that mesothelioma and the asbestos diseases were real, you know, really happened to people. We took it seriously. There was a mission. Uh, but that population of people has aged over time. And the biggest problem we have with this industry, and I, I'm sure it's the same with many industries, as newer people come along to replace those people that are retired or just rolled out of the industry, they don't come into this with a public health mission. It's just part of the job that they do. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've seen this with the work that you do as well. And that's, that's a, that's a really big point because again, as you've described how the, how the industry's progressed uh, initially, it wasn't as prescriptive as far as from a regulatory standpoint, uh, what you had is really conscientious consultants, right? Guiding contractors to do it properly so mm -hmm. you maybe didn't need to have such prescriptive regulatory oversight because it was being done voluntarily. You were, right. you were getting the oversight by the professionals, the third party professionals, you know, and obviously as as the regs became more prescriptive and then as the industry got more I and mean, that whole thing of going square footage, that's well, people do that with air duct cleaning. They, they they want to quote commercial air duct cleaning by square feet of a building. It's like that's insanity. How could no. you can't quote that? It's the no, same no, no. thing. It's like you have to base it on time and materials or what the actual project would take. And anything less than that, you have to if you go on the, square, the, the whole square foot mindset, you're going to just do the least, you know, the least effective, the, the cheapest, you know, cuts on everything. You're really not going to do things properly. Right. And that's no, kind of what happened. No, that's really what happened. And what we had is we had some schools that um, EPA went back and reviewed to here at one point. There's a couple mm -hmm. of documents that came out about that. 
And there were a number of things that people just didn't understand and things that they missed that they didn't understand. You know what the big issue is with any training program? I don't care whether it's asbestos or lead or mold. Uh, we call them the melts these days. Uh, but the fact is, is that, um, you know, when they take like a three-day training co- program, we only have so much time and can only show people so many things. But just a zoo of materials that can be out there. It's hard to show everything in a short class like that. That's why even in a refresher class, we try to add pictures of more exotic things, uh, galbestos and, and all kinds of other things that, you know, maybe they, didn't, they weren't aware of. Because a lot of times people don't take on this as a scholarship thing. They don't look for themselves. They just... Well, I took a three-day class. That's all I need to know. Oh, heck no. No, no. That, no that's no. true with anything. What worries me even more, like a three-day worker class, or in, like in Mold in New York, it's a two-day class for workers. I don't think that's sufficient. But the fact that in five days, they think they can create a supervisor or somebody that can actually oversight and design a project. So you can have no past experience, no prerequisite knowledge. In New York, for example, I'm using the mold example, but I also was a contractor supervisor in asbestos. Not that I ever was worked in the industry. I actually got that back in 92 and held it for a bunch of years just to be able to walk into projects, sure, and, you know, have sure. the ability and just to have more knowledge, you know, as an IEQ, sure. overall IEQ guy, I wanted to understand what was being done there. And there was no way that I had that card. Was I qualified to manage and run a project in asbestos abatement? Hell no. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. If you go to the asbestos construction standard um, and you go into section O where the competent person requirements are, uh, it doesn't end with a five-day class, my friend. You know, you didn't need to read that list. And probably one of the things that's scariest, and we put this into our safety program parts of the supervisor class, is they're supposed to know I mean, they have to be a competent person in safety stuff. I mean, I don't know how these guys do it without a 30-hour OSHA safety uh, class at the supervisor level and a 10-hour for the workers. Um, and I'll be honest with you, it's in any construction-related work, that's one of our biggest risks is these a lot of these guys don't understand basic safety stuff, everything from electrical, scaffolding, fall protection. I'm sure in IAQ, it's the same thing with contractors. T- totally. And, and I totally I totally concur with you. If you're in a supervisory position, you better have an OSHA 30. And I agree. An OSHA 10 should be just bare minimum for any worker. And, and that's, you know, because there's no way that in any of these, and I speak more to the mold, you know, certification sure. uh, and licensing. And what I see there, like, they don't, co- they cover like an hour or two of safety. That's, no, that's not no. sufficient. No, it's like in a worker class guy. We have like, we maybe spend an hour on safety. It's the same kind of thing. So the whole point is these guys really need to get out there. Cause I know in New York, you guys are more prescriptive on the safety training and stuff like that. I think. Uh, we are in asbestos. We are, but yeah, and certain things, but you know, the mold don't even get me going on the mold in New York is that there's nothing prescriptive. We don't, you mentioned earlier code rule 56 regarding asbestos in New York, which is prescriptive and very, very detailed. Oh yeah. The original intent with the mold law, which is article 32, the New York state mold law, uh, licensing law was that there was going to be a prescriptive code rule issued within a year after, and then they decided to drop that idea. So there is no prescriptive code rule for mold in New York. So it is like total wild west. You have a card, you have a, a you know, an acronym behind your name and that's all New York state worries about. Mm-hmm. You know what the other thing that, that, that is the most disturbing thing with people that do this work is, again, they take a three-day class or five-day class, whatever the case may be. People do not read the regulations that they have to follow. They never open them up. I've had guys call me up asking questions, and I never mind to take questions from our clients. It's what we, you know, we did. I still do for people. But the fact remains is, is that guy would call me up and say, you know, I was looking about this thing about OSHA, but I didn't see anything in your PowerPoints about it. In my PowerPoints from a training program? So I got to the point when somebody would ask a question like that, I would send them an email and I would send them a link to the regulation. I would even tell them where to look. And I said, after you read this, then you can call me back and I'll be glad to answer your question. It's almost like you have to force feed people to actually read this stuff. I teach regulators, uh, it's a very specialized EPA class where we teach regulators how to do NESHAP enforcement. Been doing this for years and we're gonna be doing some more of it soon. Um, and I've had regulators that admitted to me that they never even read a regulation. They just says, well, we know what this is all about. And I could quote this stuff chapter and verse to them and some of them have never read it or they don't understand it. They just follow whatever their, their gut tends to be. So we have regulators that are really, really good out there. I mean, just outstanding. And then we got some other people that just shoot from the hip. But I'll be honest with you, that's that's a terrible thing. But even in the workforce, 
you know, think about it with this way with our contractors. Okay, you got a hardworking guy, woman, man, woman. We got a, we got both genders that do this work. And what happens is, is that <clears throat> they're good, hardworking people, but not all of these folks have the reading and knowledge ability to get into a regulation and actually decipher the nature of how regulations progress when you read them. Okay, you can't just find a line that says something. There's context in regulations. Mm-hmm. Right. And the uh, they're, is- they're long. And, and you, you mentioned in the pre-show, which is a good point. You're probably going to make this point, but English is a second language for many people that work in this industry. Oh, very so, much so. so right. So mm-hmm. that, that, that raises a, a conundrum if the regulations are authored in English. Maybe there's some Spanish stuff, but I doubt there's stuff in Ukrainian and the other languages of people that are out there doing the work. No, you guys in New York, you got you got the you know the mixing pot up there of all kinds of folks. We've got we had some science at the institute from New York that were in Polish and Ukrainian <laughs> that we got in New York, you know, danger science. Uh, but the fact is, no, the Hispanic community predominated in the southeast and a lot of other parts of the country. And again, hardworking guys, uh, but they they could converse in the language. They could barely get through an exam, but they put something like a code of federal regulations type document in front of them. It's it's like the Charlie Brown teacher, you know, the wah, wah, wah. wah, wah. So the point being is uh, I don't blame the individual. I blame the companies that they work for. Why is it that these companies don't sit down with these fellas and these women and actually walk through all of these regulations with them so they actually understand what they're required to do? Well, and, yeah, due and, diligence and, would state that they should, but, that, you know, well, I'll be honest with you, communication requirements, HASCOM, and all kinds of other things, if you really want to mm-hmm. throw all of that at it, but it doesn't happen. And they right. just expect these guys to take a class and go. You know, the other thing is like consulting as an example, right? We got these companies, these big engineering environmental companies, and some big middle manager, you know, works his, works his, his or her way up. And they, they could be an underground tanks person, or they could be some sort of like phase one, phase two environmental site assessment person. And all of a sudden, they have an opportunity to do asbestos work. So they send a couple of kids off to a class, and they expect them the next day when they get out of here to approach some gigantic building and figure it out. They don't know the first thing about asbestos. How in the heck could they expect these kids to do the work right work uh, properly? And then when they write reports, they don't even know what's supposed to be in a report. Well, they don't even yeah. aside from the asbestos, they don't even understand anything about building structure. The, you know the different electrical systems, mechanical systems. You need to know all that when you're working in a building. <laughs> No, that, see, that's the problem with the geek class that I come from, you know, the science types. You know, what the hell do we know about buildings? So the thing is, when I first got involved in building surveys, Guy, I'm telling you, if, we, if I wasn't lucky enough to have that building superintendent or, you know, the maintenance guy with me, I would have never found half the stuff that I did. Now, you learn these things over time. But guys that come from architectural, engineering, and trades have a huge advantage and understanding building systems. Agreed. Hey, we have a couple of audience questions, so I'm going to get, get them up there. Uh, this first one from sure. Crystal, and it, I don't know why an equal sign came up there, but what is asbestos? As a private homeowner, why should I care? That you know, that's a very basic question, but it's it's not a bad question. No, basically, we have uh, a number of fibrous minerals that we call asbestos. There are six types that are regulated by EPA and OSHA currently. Uh, we have some other ones that we'll be regulating down the road that are in other materials. Uh, but asbestos is a fibrous mineral that can become airborne. The fibers are very, very small. And what they can do is they can go down deeply into your lungs and do lung damage, uh, lung scarring to cause a disease called asbestosis. But that takes quite a bit of exposure for that to occur. For that to happen to a homeowner, it would be very, very, very rare. Um, um, there's lung cancer, which we have a big issue with with those that smoke. But again, that tends to be occupational level exposures. And in a very rare disease, we call mesothelioma that you've probably heard about in your in, on TV with all the commercials that the lawyers run. Folks, it's very, very rare. And most people that get mesothelioma did have some exposure at some point in their lives, but not everybody. So for homeowners, we do have asbestos products in homes, uh, but most of the time we really don't disturb them per se. But you have flooring materials, linoleums and floor tiles, drywall with joint compound that actually seals the drywall pieces themselves textured ceilings that we can have in, in some of our older homes and things. The biggest thing is for homeowners, don't disturb it. And if we have to do renovation in a house, you want to call up somebody in one of these environmental firms. Uh, most towns have listings that you can find that would have an asbestos inspector and have them come out and look at it for you. We really don't recommend that homeowners do disturbance on their own. Uh, we've seen things online where homeowners try to do their own removal. I don't recommend it. It's never the right thing to do. You're never going to protect yourself in the surfaces in the houses from contamination. 
So the thing is, asbestos is in homes, but it is not like what we tend to find in um, in bigger buildings, office buildings and industrial. Now, in very old homes, where we might have had like steam boilers and things, we can have pipe insulation, we can have some other things that could be very hazardous. It has everything to do with the conditions of materials. As long as the materials are in good condition and are not being disturbed, we really don't have much risk in terms of homeowners. But if you have any questions about what you might have in your home, depending on the age, now the newer the home, and I would tell you if your house is within only a few years, you could have asbestos, but it's more oddball things like floor, like mastics that hold down carpets or tiles, maybe some joint compound, but probably not a whole lot else. Think the older you go, the more likely you're going to find it. Now, there has not been an entire ban on asbestos, and we've been working on this for years. Yeah, that's a follow-up question that somebody asked. Wasn't all asbestos banned? No, no, no. That's a, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. So for homeowners, I don't want people to lose sleep over this, but if you have questions, get the right person to come into your home and give it a look, especially if you live in a much older home. And it's especially important before you do demolition or renovation work. Okay, now the ban. Yeah, the uh, that's that, that's, a, that's another mid, big misconception. We had a an issue in the late '80s where we tried to ban all asbestos use in this country. It's called a ban and phase out rule. It failed. Uh, it never passed. But I think people believe that it has. Um, basically, there are certain types of asbestos that have been banned. So, like the fireproofing that we find on structural steel, fluffy, what we call friable material, that's been banned for years. Pipe insulation has been banned for years. Uh, acoustical type treatments that you like the popcorn ceilings and things uh, that's been banned for some time in decorative materials, but that's not everything. So a lot of other oddball things can get into, into materials, not only, not really so much your homes per se, but industrial commercial uses uh, very, very commonly. Uh, we could find uh, like drywall joint compound in buildings that are only a few years old. And some of that stuff has really been imported. We haven't made it here for years. So imports can be an issue, uh, lagging materials that are in building supply centers, uh, all kinds of weird things that occur that can get this stuff into buildings today. But I'll be honest with you, the biggest use of asbestos is in what we call the chloralkali industry in this country. And these are the people that make real heavy-duty chemicals, things like acids and bases like Drano and things like that. They use asbestos filters. And they are the biggest uh, users of this. And the reason they use asbestos filters is because it's about one of the few things that won't be killed by these very heavy duty chemicals. And they are the groups that have really been fighting a ban in this country. So we have a process going right now. We have a, we have a bill called the Allen Reinstein Act uh, that is uh, still on the books to try to ban asbestos. We've got a couple of studies that are going on with EPA right now, a part one on chrysotile and a part two on everything else, including legacy materials, which are the things that are still in buildings. And we are working very, very hard to get a ban on asbestos in this country. It just doesn't happen. Dozens of other countries around the world have banned asbestos. Mm -hmm. We're one of a few. It's it's just amazing. But you know what it really boils down to? Corporate interests. You know, if, if there's a group out there that doesn't want it and they're a really big company, they have sway with Congress. Unfortunately, yeah, the, the dollars do speak at this point. Uh, one one last fo uh, follow up question there. Um, if you know, where do, where does somebody, especially from a consumer standpoint, where do they go, you know, for these questions and help on asbestos and lead, you know. That okay. Well, the thing is, first and foremost, I would go to the EPA web pages on this stuff. And they're relatively easy to find. Just in Google, put EPA asbestos or EPA lead-based paint. And if you are a homeowner, there are links specifically for homeowners uh, that you can follow. Uh, that would be for just for your basic information. Okay. Then, on the other hand, uh, what you can do is uh, just Google uh, environmental consulting firms in your local area. Most environmental consulting firms in your area are going to at least have asbestos people if they don't have lead-based paint people as well. And those are different disciplines, different training, different sets of expertise. And if they don't, they can hook you up with somebody that can. Um, lead-based paint uh, was banned in 1978. So if you're in a pre-78 uh, the possibility is of lead-based paint. But also with lead-based paint, there's another maxim that works. The older the joint, the more likely. And if you're in a pre-1940 type house, it's very, very likely that you have lead-based paint. And then it decreases as you go up to 1978. Uh, for asbestos, like I said, something that's a relatively new place, you probably don't. If you do, it's a very oddball material and it's probably not in your in your space per se. It's under floor tiles or it's other materials that are used as adhesives or caulks and things like that. 
Uh, but if you if you do need help, just look for environmental consulting firms in your local area and ask them if they can help you with asbestos and lead-based paint. But do know that they're going to charge fees for this stuff. So again, these people don't necessarily go cheap. Uh, but on the other hand, it probably isn't going to be a mortgage either. And you know another, I think another point to make too is that uh, lead-based paint is not necessarily totally banned either. Right? It's used still in industrial applications, uh, oh, bridges, marine guys that work in industrial. It's, it, it, yeah, right. But we it's have OSHA the durability factor. Oh yeah, we have OSHA regulations that are pretty specific about that too. Uh, so when it comes to the workforce stuff, there's absolutely no reason why these guys wouldn't know. And I'll be honest with you, bridge blasting people and things of that nature, do these big things, they, they know these rules. The biggest problem with lead is that if you have lead-based paint in your home, do not think that it's a hazard just because it's there. You might have three or four layers of paint over the original lead paint. So as long as you have a good uh, coating of paint on your walls, you probably don't have risk. Whereas where we tend to find these hazards, not so much where homeowners live, maybe sometimes, but it's older rental places, public housing, uh, things of this nature where there isn't a lot of maintenance. So the issue is if we do find chipping, chalking, these kind of things with the lead paint, it's mostly a problem for children. And we tend to look at six and under, but basically their cognitive abilities go all the way up to 12. And as the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission even looks at it that way. Uh, but the fact remains it's the little ones uh, that we have to be concerned with. So if you have very small children, you live in an old place, I would suggest that you get some help on lead-based paint. So um, in the uh, in the pre-show, you mentioned the term industry commoditization, and I didn't pronounce it right. But, uh, yeah, that's it. it okay, so I, I, you got to elaborate on that. Okay, so in the long run, going back to that mature business cycle, what happens is, is that as industries get mature, what happens is the public health mission drops out of it. It becomes a task. And what happens is, is that it, it starts becoming, well, this is what we normally do, not necessarily what we're required to do or what we should do. And so what, what happens is, is that we have a whole cadre of people in the middle and the lower end of performers that they may not do things prescriptively by regulations. They just kind of do things as they do things. And it becomes this vanilla approach to how we actually do the work. But I do want to make very, very clear there are outstanding firms out there that do really, really well. But these outstanding firms tend to be expensive and they tend to work for the big players, the big industrial commercial players and things like that. A lot of these high-flying uh, firms that do really good work, they tend not to do homeowner work. Smaller, con smaller consultants tend to do that because they can have the time for that kind of thing. Uh, but the fact remains is, is that the commoditization is just this vanilla, vanillaizing, if you will, of the work in that it becomes a standard practice, not necessarily a compliant way of doing work. Like as an example, you know, we talked about training and these guys really don't know what they need to do. And asbestos removal for what we call class one removal boards, what we call the friable materials like fireproofing and pipe insulation, very hazardous work. They're supposed to take showers every time that they leave these work areas. Well, you know, we see a lot of times, especially with our Hispanic community and other languages that maybe didn't understand the details of these regulations and they have bosses that don't push this stuff, they may erect the shower. But that doesn't mean there's a hose hooked to it or a water filtration system. But we call it the appearance of compliance. Yes, there's a shower stall, but nobody's using it. We have an airless paint sprayer to wet the materials, but we haven't fired it up. So this is what I mean by commoditization. People tend to do things in a way that looks like it's compliant, but God knows what the quality of work is. And it has a lot to do with enforcement. And the states like in New York and California, Texas, and these other more regulated states, some of the Midwestern states, some of the Southeastern states, where they require what we call project monitoring, where there's a third-party person out there actually watching these contractors, and they have to be hired by the owner, not the contractor themselves. We tend to see better work because there's a cooperative effort here to get it done. And they know that there are eyes involved. In places where that doesn't happen, that's where the commoditization is really occurring. Um, just to just follow up on your uh, comment earlier as far as where somebody could find information, uh, this is uh, the uh, link for uh, EPA uh, asbestos information. That's a starting point, right? Somebody could go there. Yes. Uh, epa.gov forward slash asbestos. So uh, by all means, check that out. That's going to give you at least a starting point for where you can look at it overall. Um, and there is also an EPA site for uh, lead paint, which is uh, epa.gov. Uh, Let me just grab it for you and put it up on the uh, 
character generator. And this will be your, your link for that. It is epa.gov forward slash lead. Oh, that's a very busy web page when you get there. So the thing I is, know. if you're, if you're <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's the downside of it. Is like it, what we have a healthy indoors also at our healthy indoors sites. Uh, if you go to healthyindoors.com or uh, not the global.com, but just actually healthyindoors.com, we have uh, a lot of the EPA and other uh, guidance documents digitized and available where you can get to those on our site under the resources tab. So we'll talk about that right as our closeout. But I would just I would just tell you on the EPA lead site, if you're a homeowner, look for the homeowner links. Okay. Right. And then actually, if you're going to have renovation done, the RRP, the renovation rules are clearly there, but you're going to have to make a couple clicks on these pages to find the things. So just be patient. It's there. You'll find it. Um, you had mentioned also in uh, pre-show that uh, some some of the uh, clinically diagnosable asbestos-related diseases like mesothelioma, asbestosis, uh, they're decreasing. And, and maybe because at least direct exposures have decreased over the past few decades, uh, mm -hmm. that, that's good, right? But there's other things going on, right? It, there's other, other exposures to asbestos besides some of the classic industrial applications and insulation applications. Right? Well, that's really in the long run what like we've talc, got. We heard a lot about talc exposures. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah, another we, thing that attorneys keep posting at, you know, 2 a.m. and, you know, trying to solicit the class action suits. And they're scaring the heck out of people. Um, so let me, let, me hit a, let me hit a bit of this. Uh, the Center for Disease Control, NIOSH, uh, AT, and the, the public health groups, uh, they put out, reports on asbestos disease periodically. The last one is up to 2017, as I recall. And asbestosis, which is physical scarring of the lungs, which takes quite a bit of exposure to occur. And that really affected the guys that were doing insulation work years ago, where they were in massive clouds of this stuff. That's dropping off precipitously, as it should. Most of these men, uh, men in the workforce in those days, I'm sure there were some women, but the fact is the men in the workforce uh, have passed away. The World War II generation is mostly gone. Uh, what I like to say is the Vietnam era generation. I don't mean veterans particularly, but I mean that generation of people was the last group of workers to see those levels of exposure. And those groups are aging. So asbestosis is dropping off, okay, as it should. There will probably always be cases. Uh, it'll be small over time. Uh, with uh, lung cancer, the biggest issue we have is that we don't know how to break apart the, the information because of smoking and other things that can cause lung cancer. So we don't really have hard data in terms of the number of cases, but it's overlooked in these conversations very often. The doctors that work at Mount Sinai in New York, these experts that uh, look at, at these diseases, see asbestos-related lung cancer all the time, but we don't talk about it very much. Now, with mesothelioma, with all these lawyer cases, like I said, you know, it's very rare, but it is slowly dropping off, okay? But not long ago, we had a, um, a report that there is an increase in women in mesothelioma. And it's, uh, it's a, mesothelioma is a, is, a, is a type of cancer that's around the tissue around your lungs. It's called a pleura. And then we have the one down around our gut area called the peritoneum. Most of it is up here. And what happens is these little tiny fibers poke into that tissue, and for reasons we don't understand, uh, it can manifest cancer. And it's uh, incurable, unfortunately. Uh, but with women, we're seeing peritoneal, which is in the lower area here. Uh, I just was at a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago from ASTM, and we had a very knowledgeable uh, lady doctor there that talked about the incidence of mesothelioma in women. And one of the things that's provocative, uh, because I think a lot of this talc stuff is, a, is really hokum, but the fact remains is, is that um, um, if you think about moms years ago when we had asbestos and talc, and I want people to understand talc, uh, the likelihood to find asbestos in talc is very likely in a lot of deposits. The geology is such that it forms that way. There are deposits that have little to none. Nobody cared years ago. They would just mine talc and put it in products. And we know this very well. There's all kinds of uh, information on this. So years ago, when this stuff would have had appreciable asbestos in it, when mom is diapering a child and dumping the, the baby powder or themselves, women used it quite a bit. Talcum products were very common before we had body deodorants and things. Um, I'm trying to think of what the name of the product is. I'll think of it in a minute. A cashmere bouquet was a very common one that women used. It had asbestos in it years ago. And so the thing is that maybe there's an uptick 
in women, um, and it's a small percentage, but it's there in the data of this peritoneal cancer, and maybe it is from the use of talc. And the thing is, I do want you to know that's from breathing talc, and these fibers push their way through the body. It's not from thermal use on the body. Okay, uh, so there is there's probably something with this, but on the other hand, uh, the way that lawyers have approached this, uh, you know, every, every you know, they tried to get every woman to believe that if she had uh, ovarian cancer, that it came from talc, and they had thousands of cases. Right. You know, I'll be honest with you. You have to talk to the doctors. I'm not a doctor. I listen to them. And we don't know enough about talc to really know that it could possibly have caused all of these diseases. And with ovarian cancer, there's so many things that can cause ovarian cancer. And like I said, what the doctors are really seeing in women is a mesothelioma, not so much the ovarian. I'm sure that occurs. But I don't think the doctors at this point know that talc, how much it affects that or not. So it's really a mystery. But talc is a very complicated thing. So we, do, we can have asbestos in it. The products that we have that are out on the market today, if they did, if they, I should say, if they do, it takes a research grade analyst to even find it. It's very, very low. But what does the public want when they're, baby, when they're powdering a child? They want zero. It's understandable that there's an emotional yeah. attachment to that. Sure. you know, Absolutely. I, get, I, don't I, get it. I, I understand entirely. But I have friends that are geologists for these huge companies, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And there is the biggest issue is the detection of the asbestos in the talc. And they undergunned how they were looking at talc to find the asbestos over the years. And I want you to understand that this is part of the Food and Drug Administration. This is not an asbestos in building issue. This is a consumer product issue. And the FDA is working on this very hard with a lot of really sharp people. So what we will see on this talc issue eventually uh, will be a combination of working with government agencies, including the FDA, to give us guidance on this, and then maybe to give guidance to the talc industry of how they have to do uh, analysis to determine whether the talc is clean or not. Maybe we won't be able to use talc. Frankly, if you're very concerned about this, it's probably best with children to go to a cornstarch-based product versus talc if you're concerned about it. But again, this is everything we kind of know, uh, but I would think in the long run there is risk with asbestos and talc. I don't think anybody can put their finger on to how much. So um, I, I guess we're getting, you know, toward the ends of, of the amount of time we have left on today's program, unfortunately, because I, I, I could spend hours with you here, Tom, because you're, you're just a wealth of knowledge. But um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to, um, kind of, you know, I'm sure there's at least one burning topic that we didn't cover in our discussion today that you'd like to at least get out there. So I'd like to, uh, you know, give, give you a chance to, you know, and that doesn't have to be a summary of what we discussed, but, you know, what's a big takeaway for you, you know, for the audience today? And remembering that we have a varied audience. We go everywhere from general consumers up to industry professionals to regulators, academics. We're all over the place. Sure. So, um, so I would say, I would say to kind of basically cover the things we talked about, but for homeowners, I don't want you to live in angst folks. Okay. Because sometimes people do about this kind of thing. Most things that are in houses, unless it's very old, uh, where you might have pipe insulation type materials. The materials that you have in your house really don't raise a risk for you other than when they're very disturbed or if you disturb them. So the fact is, if you're concerned, have them looked at, find out where they are. And if it doesn't work for you, get them out of the house. Uh, but I would tell you, don't run to do that. If they're in good condition and they're not being disturbed, there's very low risk to anybody. Now, to my industry people, for God's sake, open up a regulation and read it. If you want to know what my big complaint is, is just that. We have people out there that are very good about this. But so many of these young people that come along, I literally watch them look on their phone and go through their phone trying to read a regulation. Guys, you can't do that. You physically have to open it up on your computer or, God forbid, print it out and put it on paper. I have copies of NISHAP and OSHA that are so stained and thumbed up that sit right next to my computer because I still go back and look at things when people have questions because I want to make sure I have this right. Also know what the differences are. Like when you had, you know, something as an example, like final clearance air sampling using phase contrast microscopy. It's ridiculous. Phase contrast was never designed for final clearance guys. You're, you're 0.01 fibers per cubic centimeter. Same thing as saying 10,000 fibers per cubic meter. It's one-tenth of what the permissible exposure limit is. That's all you're really saying with this. PEM is the only method that was ever designed for clearance, and that 70 structures is a zero exposure standard based on the knowledge of when that method was written. So read regulations, 
know what methods are. NIOSH 7400 method if you're doing air sampling. The OSHA regulations, the construction standard, general industry standard, and by God, NESHAP. And if any of you are, have access to my email address or my LinkedIn page, let me know. I have a version of NESHAP that's a lot easier to read. The old school NESHAP is tough to read. And I'll be glad to pass that along to anybody. And if you want, we can uh, share that in the show notes. You know, you can we can talk about that and get that up there so that would be accessible for people. Sure. Again, the, uh, the uh, broadcast, uh, this this video and the audio podcast, uh, complimentary podcast uh, audio uh, section of this is going to be available uh, on that uh, website you see there at uh, global.healthyendoors.com uh, forward slash healthy indoors live show. Uh, and you can go right to the individual program. Um, yeah, so much, so much, so much to cover. Um, and wow, you know, th this is fabulous, Tom. I mean, I, it's, I, I could, I could listen to you speak all day. I've, I've had the opportunity to hear you present at, uh, a lot of the EIA events over the years. And, uh, I just, uh, I, I really appreciate your passion for, for the industry and, and your just, you know, your long-term commitment to trying to take, take care of things and take it right. Well, like I like to tell people, you know, it's not just an entrepreneurial industry. It's a public health mission. When yeah, and obviously old, it's a personal It's a personal mission. I mean, you can see your passion. Well, the thing is, anytime we deal with lead, mold, any of it, we're trying to present, prevent exposure to people. That's our job. Yeah, and uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully we can get the industry maybe more back in that in that commitment and passion because honestly it's i got in the industry in the mid 80s too you know and, and and not just for a job because i took it pretty seriously you know and i really i've, I've seen the, the havoc racked on people by you know bad indoor environmental conditions and not dealt with the asbestos directly but dealing with mold dealing with moisture issues dealing with chemicals and sure. and you know just hor hor just horrible effects on people over the years so i i take it very personally too and you know and i i greatly you know just want to give you know commend what you've done and your your body of work and want more you know it's like we certainly you know you published an article in healthy indoors magazine a while back i'd love to have you uh publish more of your content because it's just it's just great information i'd be glad to so yeah we're at that we're at that time unfortunately uh you know that's uh, every good show must uh, probably come to an end uh what i would like to do is uh, point out that some of you may have caught this show on the online global community probably most of you did but we live stream it to facebook and uh, uh youtube linkedin a lot of other places so you may have been watching this show somewhere else so i i think it's uh you know i'd like to point out that one of the great places to go would be at the global community, global.healthyindoors.com, because yeah. there's a lot of other content there, and you have an opportunity to uh, get uh, actually see some other stuff that's pretty neat. Um, also, our flagship of our uh, information is at healthyindoors.com. Uh, that's our that's our uh, home uh, predominant website where you can get all the back issues of our magazines, our shows, and just a ton of resources. I mentioned earlier there's a resources page. And again, you can get to a lot of different content on specific topics. So that's that's super valuable. And of course, the online global community is where uh, many of you are watching the show and it just kicked off. I mean, there we go. Uh, a lot of it's free and wide open to the public, all these uh, content, but there's uh, it's much more than that. The online global community is actually a place where you can network and uh, interact with other industry professionals and like-minded people and maybe not like-minded people uh, around the planet from various sectors of the industry and uh, building performance and everywhere else. So I would highly recommend you take a look at that and uh, check that out in the future as well. Um, so I guess it's like sign off time. So I really want to thank our guest, Tom Lobenthal for uh, this really informative uh, uh, hour and happy that you were able to take time out of your day. Uh, and we'll have you again soon on the show. So. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I hope people got a little bit from it today. Uh, we've got some good comments there, there. So I think, uh, I think, it was well-received and more people will see it. So uh, we'll be back again next week uh, here on uh, the Healthy Indoors live show and every other Thursday. Well, most every other Thursday. Sometimes we'll be recorded. But uh, Thursdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time, um, you can watch us live. You can interact with us, ask questions. And certainly you can watch our back issues anytime on the global community. So until next uh, week, I'll say stay safe, stay happy, and uh, uh, we'll see you soon.